and we continue our study on the spiritual disciplines. Last couple weeks, we've been talking about hearing the Word of God, reading the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, and meditating on the Word of God. This week, we're going to transition, and we're going to talk about prayer. So just a, a couple of quotes to get you interested. Matthew Henry said, You may, may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. Prayer is a vital part of the Christian life. John Bunyan said, Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. You have to have prayer. We've been talking about the Word of God the last couple of weeks. Someone went and asked Spurgeon one time, what's more important, praying or reading the Bible? And his answer was, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? You've got to have both. They're both important. John, uh, excuse me, John Calvin defined prayer this way. He gave a very technical definition. He said, prayer is a, is a communion, with men, uh, communion of men with God by which, having entered the heavenly sanctuary, they appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience where necessity so demands that what they believed was not in vain. That's a very technical definition, isn't it? Some of you would expect to find in the systematic theology. Charles Spurgeon gives a little bit more lofty preacher kind of definition. Here's how he defines it. To pray is to mount on eagles' wings above the clouds and get into the clear heaven where God dwells, to enter the treasure house of God and to enrich oneself out of an inexhaustible storehouse. Prayer is to grasp heaven in one's arms, to embrace the deity within one's soul, and to feel one's body made a temple of the Holy Ghost. To pray is to reach the highest point of Christian health. Prayer is a vital part of your life, and this morning... I want to go through and just look at a basic biblical theology of prayer and talk about what is prayer, and then we'll deal some objections that people make of why they can't pray, and then I'll give you some practical tips on prayer. Let's start here. Prayer is not you making a decision. Prayer is a divine initiative. Prayer is a divine initiative. In Luke 11, 9 through 10, he says this, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you, Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who knocks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. You say, well, that kind of sounds like it's my initiative. I have to ask, I have to seek, and I have to knock. Edmund Hebert wrote on this passage, and he pointed out something that I thought was very helpful. Here's what he said. Thus we have our Lord saying, ask, seek, knock. When once we apprehend that the initiative lies with God, we recognize that prayer is not forcing ourselves into the presence of God, but rather accepting His gracious invitation. Without His welcome, it would be futile for man to attempt to crash the gates of heaven. Prayer is making use of the grand provision God has made for us. The only reason that you can pray, the only reason that I can pray, is because God has invited us to it, because God has opened that doorway for you. He has made it possible. If God didn't want you to pray, there would be no point in even trying. You wouldn't get through. Prayer is a divine initiative. Prayer is also a privilege. Hebrews 10, verse 
19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, it is only the Christian who has the ability to truly pray. The Muslim cannot pray. The Mormon cannot pray. The atheist cannot pray. The Hindu cannot pray. No one else has the ability to pray because it is only through the blood of Christ that a person can enter into the presence of God and seek after God. Verse 22, he says, Let us draw nearer with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It is the blood of Christ that makes us clean so that we can actually enter into his presence. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 3, verses 11 and 12. He says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. It's not just that you can go to God in prayer. It's not just that you can kind of crawl your way to him. Paul and the writer of Hebrews, or I think it's Paul as well, said you can enter boldly with confidence into the presence of God and submit your petitions. So prayer is a divine privilege. Prayer is, I'm sorry, prayer is a divine initiative. Prayer is a, div- uh, a privilege. And prayer is thankful. Prayers should be filled with thankfulness. Ephesians 5 verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. When speaking to God, your prayers are filled with thanksgiving for what he has done. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body to be thankful. Two verses later, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. A thankless Christian, a Christian whose prayer life never includes thanksgiving, is in a really bad spot. There's something very wrong if your prayers never include any kind of thanks. Even Jesus, when he prayed, used thanksgiving to the Father. John 11, verse 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. If you want to pray more like Jesus, give thanks in your prayers. This is, in fact, the will of God for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A lot of people searching for God's will and looking all over the place for what is the will of God. The will of God for your life is that you would be thankful, and that means in your prayers. Prayer is also worship. You can worship God in prayer. A good example of this is in Daniel. Well, excuse me. Let, when we say give worship, it means that we're going to give God the respect, honor, and glory that he is due in our prayers. Daniel 9, verse 4, he said, I prayed to the Lord, God, Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep, keep his commandments. To worship God means to simply recount who God is, what God has done, and to speak about God and tell him who he is and what he's done and to worship him for it. Matthew Henry, in his book on a method for praying, he said, of the first part of prayer, 
which is the address to God, the adoration of him with suitable acknowledgments, professions, and preparatory requests. Matthew Henry, John Owen, a lot of the Puritans said you should begin your prayers by just worshiping God. Start the prayer just by giving worship. So prayer is thankfulness. Prayer is worship. Prayer is also confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The confession of sin, the dealing with sin is an important aspect of your prayer life. Sin, as John Bunyan said, will keep you from prayer. The knowledge of sin will keep you from prayer. Psalm 32.5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions from the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 38, for I confess my iniquity. I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. If you're not confessing your sin and your sin is weighing upon you, go into prayer and spend some time confessing your sin and being honest with God and speaking of your sin in the same way that He speaks about it. So prayer is thankfulness, prayer is worship, prayer is confession. Prayer is also constant. Paul said in Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. Where do we get constant in that? It comes from the word devote. It means to persist in, to be busy in, to busy yourself, to be engaged in a certain activity. The word is used in Acts 2.46. He says, day by day, continuing. It's this ongoing Constant activity. Constant prayer characterized the early church. The early church didn't have television programs and radio stations and the internet. But they turned the world upside down because of their prayer life. Acts 1.14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, same message. To doctrine, to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Even the apostle says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They prioritized prayer. So prayer is constant. That's the positive side. That's saying prayer keeps going. The negative side of that is to say that prayer is unceasing. Prayer doesn't stop. The life of prayer doesn't end because something in the world changed. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Paul here is talking about not just a lifestyle of prayer, but an attitude of prayer. Where prayer becomes a daily, lived out experience that you are praying all the time. One example of this that I think was good in scripture is out of Daniel. Remember Daniel was taken away in, into captivity and the Medes and the Persians came in and they took over Babylon and Daniel's serving the king Darius and some of the other advisors weren't really happy with Daniel and they convinced the king to make a rule that you cannot pray or worship any other god or you're going to die. Here's what the book of Daniel says Daniel did. Daniel 6 verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, the order of the king, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem. 
And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before God, as he had been doing previously. Daniel's prayer life didn't stop simply because the king said, you've got to stop. We come up with all sorts of excuses as to why we can't pray today. But the true prayer life of a Christian is ongoing. It is unending. So why do people stop praying? What are some of the reasons that people have for not going into prayer, for not having a committed time of prayer every day? One of the big ones is self-sufficiency. This feeling like I don't need help. Thinking I can do this on my own. Psalm 18.6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and he cried to my God for help. When we recognize how weak we are, when we recognize how little we can do, the obvious thing for us to do is to go and to seek help. And it's when we don't think we're weak, when we don't think that we need help, that we stop praying. John 15, 5, Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. If we actually believe that, how many of us would get in the car and drive 70 miles an hour down the highway? If we actually believe that, how many would do anything? Would you get out of bed without first going to God and asking for his assistance? Asking him for his help? Prayerlessness is a sign of self-sufficiency. It's a sign of pride. I don't need help. Why do people stop praying? First, self-sufficiency. Secondly, they give up. Luke 18.1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. They submit a petition and God doesn't answer it right, right away. So they stop and they give up. Or they just break the routine and they stop praying every day. And so the, the petition never goes through. Psalm 55, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will, confess, I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice. You know, we're used to hearing in scripture morning and evening, day and night. And the psalm is just to emphasize the reality that it doesn't matter what time of day it is. He adds, and at noon, I'm going to pray at all times, unceasingly. I'm going to continue in prayer. And he says, I will complain and murmur. He's not complaining and murmuring to people around him. His complaints and his murmurs are going toward God. He's, he's submitting his, his problems to God. And he says, and he will hear my voice. And the idea of God hearing is the idea that God not only hears, but that he is willing to respond. There's a really great parable in Luke 11, if you have your Bibles, if you'd like to go there, on the tenacity necessary to be successful in prayer. Luke 11, starting in verse 5. It says, then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. 
I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So you come to my house and you say, hey, Frank, I need a loaf of bread. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm watching Paul Washer. I, I can't get up right now. You, you, you have to wait. And I think you leave, and a few minutes later, Frank, I need a loaf of bread. No, look, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm watching Paul Washer. It's a great sermon. Don't distract me. Go away. I may not be a good enough friend to get up and give you what you need simply because you're my friend. But if you keep doing that long enough, I'll get up and give you what you need just so I can get rid of you. That's the argument God's making here. Just pounding on the door over and over and over and over. And I got my verses wrong. This is the next set of verses. Jesus says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If I'll get up and give you what you need simply to get rid of you, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. How much more will God answer your prayer if you continue in prayer? And I still got the verses wrong here. The next one. He keeps going in Luke. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? The argument here is if, if a child goes to his father and asks for something good, his father's not going to turn around and give him something that's going to hurt him. If a child comes to his dad and says, Hey, Dad, can I have a sandwich? And the dad's like, No, but here's a rattlesnake. It's not how fathers respond to their children. He continues, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? To give the Holy Spirit in the sense of giving more, more influence and power of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 7, verse 11, he gives almost the exact same promise. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask of him? If you and I, being evil, sinful people, are willing to give good things to our children, why would we think that our Heavenly Father is not as good as we are? That He will not give good things to those who ask of Him? Prayer is answered. James 4, 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. If there's something in your Christian life that's not going well, if there's something that you need in your Christian walk, you do not have because you do not ask. And we're not doing the prosperity gospel here. Ask for a portion, you're good. No. We're talking about your, your daily bread, what you need. Now here's my question. Do we actually believe this? And the second we say, yes, we do believe this, then we should also ask, okay, if you believe this, does it show up in our prayer life? 
does it, is it demonstrated in how we live in a life of incessant prayer? If God says, I'm willing to give what you ask for, if we actually believe that, how much more time would we be spending every day praying? Prayer is answered. Prayer is also learned. Luke 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Think about the things that happened while Jesus was praying. I mean, these guys sat there and listened to him pray who knows how many times. While Jesus was praying, the transfiguration occurred. There's other examples, and I forgot them off the top of my head. But multiple times they see Jesus pray, and then amazing things happen. They see the power of prayer in Jesus' life, and they say, I want to learn how to pray like that. This has been made before, and I'll make the same point. The disciples never came to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you teach us how to perform miracles? Would you teach me how to cast out a demon? Would you teach me how to preach? Would you teach me how to teach? But they did go to Jesus and say, Lord, would you teach me how to pray? We have to learn to pray. Well, how do you learn how to pray? Well, there's an easy way. There's one way. You can study Scripture, what we're doing now. Look at what Scripture says. Study what Scripture says. You can also read good Christian literature. There's a ton of really good books by good and godly men that teach on the issue of prayer. Another way you can learn how to pray is by praying with other Christians. Hearing other people pray. Corporate prayer is one of the best ways to learn and to grow in prayer because you hear how other people pray and people who have been praying longer than you. But what is the best way to learn how to pray? What's the absolute best way? Those three are necessary. But if you really want to learn how to pray, what Carl said, go pray! It's like, well, I'm not very good at riding a bicycle, so I'm just not going to do it. No. If you want to get better, you have to actually go do it. So if you want to be better at prayer, yes, read scripture. Yes, read good Christian literature. Yes, listen to other Christians pray. But ultimately, it's going to come down to you going and praying. Andrew Murray commented on this. He said, reading a book about prayer, listening to lectures and talking about it is very good. But it won't teach you to pray. You get nothing without exercise, without practice. I might listen for a year to a professor of music playing the most beautiful music, but that won't teach me to play an instrument. It's not just head knowledge. You have to actually go and practice. Do it. So what are some objections? By objections, I mean, what are some things that we say to ourselves that, well, this is why I can't go pray. This is why I don't pray as much as I ought to pray. Well, one of them is my prayers aren't very eloquent. Sometimes I don't know what to say. My mind goes blank. I have nothing to say to God. Or I'm like Moses and I stutter a lot. And I can't seem to say it clearly. 
John Calvin said the language is indeed abrupt, as the saints in prayer will often stammer. But this stammering is more acceptable to God than all the figures of rhetoric, be they ever so fine and glittering. To have a few broken sentences in prayer backed up by a genuine heart is far better than having three hours of eloquence that doesn't really actually mean anything to you. Not only is God accepting of broken, stammering prayers, but God uses them. Romans 8.26, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for groaning with, uh, excuse me, with groanings too deep for words. Your broken, stammering prayers are taken by the Holy Spirit, and they are made perfect before the Heavenly Father. And if you feel like you can't pray, good. You can't. You need the Spirit's intercession. That's what Paul says here. He helps us on our weaknesses. We don't even know what to pray. And the Spirit takes what you offer and He makes it perfect and acceptable. Psalm 10, 17, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble, the weak, the lowly. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. I always got confused what he meant by incline your ear. And then I remember what my grandfather used to do to me. He was an old bomber pilot. And I'd go up and try to talk to him, and he'd go, Huh? It's the idea of, I'm intently listening, straining to hear what you have to say. And he uses a, a, an anthropomorphism that God will bend his ear toward you and lean in to hear what you have to say. So the first objection, I don't have the words or I don't speak very well. Not a good objection. Second objection, yeah, but I don't always feel like praying. I mean, sometimes I wake up and I, I don't even want to go pray. And besides, you know, you see all these other Christians when they go pray, and they pray so much, that's because God has gifted them in a special way. They have some ability or some grace from God that, you know, they always want to go pray. They always have this desire in their heart. And if I'm honest, this used to be me. I used to wake up and think, well, you know, guys like Paul Washer, he, he never has a problem with not wanting to pray. It's something he always wants to do. How many of you know who Paul Washer is? Everybody? Okay. Then I heard this little sermon from Paul Washer. It's not actually little. It's over an hour. But I just want to play like two minutes of this little sermon. And I want you to hear what he says about prayer and his attitude toward prayer. Here's Paul Washer.
And you say, we are to pray all the time, but how do we learn to practice the presence of God? How do we learn to pray all the time? I submit to you, it is by the discipline of a separated prayer life, of getting up in the morning, early, before day. And I have come to believe that in fighting this battle of piety, one of the best things for me to do is this. To discover what my flesh most hates and do that first. That's really important. Before I'm weakened or distracted. To get up in the morning and I'll tell you this, my flesh hates prayer more than Bible study. Don't. Because Bible study can actually be used for my glory. I can know more than others. I can speak better than others. If I study well, I'll be able to speak at conferences. But no one will know about my life of prayer. I will gain nothing from men, but I will gain much from God. My flesh hates prayer. My pray flesh till you hates can pray. Prayer. pray to be helped to pray. And do not give up praying because you cannot pray, for it is when you think you cannot pray that you are most praying. And sometimes when you have no sort of comfort in your supplications, it is then that your heart, all broken and cast down, is really wrestling and truly prevailing with the Most High. Sometimes God takes away that desire for prayer just to humble you. And if you're struggling with a lack of desire in prayer, if going to prayer isn't a whole lot of fun and you get very little out of it, then pray that you can pray. Ask for God's help in prayer. Next objection. I don't have time. You know, I always mean to go pray, but, you know, it just never happens. It never works. I, you know, get to the end of the day and I never get around to it. John Calvin said, unless we fix certain hours of the day for prayer, it easily slips from our memory. You don't have to pray first thing in the morning. Although Spurgeon said it's better to tune the fiddle before the concert. You can pray in the morning. You can pray in the afternoon. You can pray in the early evening. You can pray late at night. Pick the time that works best for you. But pick a time. Have a time set apart for prayer. Just like you have a time set apart for Bible study, have a time that you intentionally set aside to go pray. Ian e. Bounds said, Prayer is no petty duty put into a corner. No piecemeal performance made out of fragments of time which have been snatched from the business of other engagements of life. But it means that the best of our time, the heart of our time, and the, and the strength must be given. We give the best of our day to God. When are you at your best? If you're not a morning person, 5 a.m. probably is not the time for you to get up and try to pray. If you're a night owl, pray at night. If you're a morning person, pray in the morning. If the house is just crazy and the only time that you can really sit down and pray is when everyone else is asleep, then do that. Pick the best time of your day when you are at your best. Matthew 6, 6 says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This idea that I can just walk through life and just pray as it comes to me, and that's what God wants. No, He wants you to separate yourself 
from the world, from all the activities of life, and go find time to pray and be intentional. Even Jesus. Then Jesus came with his uh, came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit over here while I go over there and pray. Mark 6.46, after bidding them farewell, he left for a mountain to pray. This was a normal part of his life. Separating himself from everyone and everything so that he can make time for prayer. In Mark 1, he's actually ministering to people and healing people and casting out demons. Everyone goes to sleep and people are still waiting for him and he sneaks out just so he can go pray. He valued it that much. Okay. Going to practical tips. Any comments, questions? Nothing. Okay. Practical tips. I have two main things I want to discuss, and I'm hoping these are are going to be helpful to you. These have been a huge help to me. Um, The first one is overcoming a cold heart. This can be really hard. This is something I I struggled with for a while. I was trying to pray, and it just felt like nothing was working. And you've probably experienced this before. You, You have no desire for prayer. You can't focus. You don't seem to have any freedom in prayer. Everything's just kind of stuttered and broken. And it kind of feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Have you ever had that problem? George Mueller came up with a solution for this. And actually, he didn't come up with it. The Puritans taught the same thing. How many of you have heard of George Mueller? Anybody read his autobiography? Oh, my goodness. Okay, George Mueller was a Persian pastor. If you have not read the autobiography of George Mueller, go check it out. He was a Persian pastor who went and stud- who went to England as a missionary. And he was in England about the same time that Spurgeon was preaching in London. And when he got to his little church and he was going to pastor in England, a couple weeks into his ministry, he found out that the church was renting pews. And so if you wanted to sit in the front row, you had to pay more. And if you couldn't pay as much, you'd have to sit near the back. And Mueller saw that and he said, man, this is horrible. And he went to the deacons, because that was their church government. He went to the deacons and said, we're not doing this anymore. This is favoring the rich. So we're not going to do this anymore. And they said, well, pastor, that's a great idea, but this is how we pay your salary. If we don't do this, we can't pay you. And George said, okay, that's fine. Here's what you're going to do. Put a little lockbox in the back of the church, and I'm just going to make an announcement and tell people if they'd like to contribute to my needs, they can. And then I'll just pray for the rest of it. And his autobiography is the detailing of how that worked out for him. Well, then he wanted to start a ministry for orphans, and he started an orphanage. And he told people, I'm starting an orphanage, but again, didn't want to tell anyone if he needed money or not. And throughout his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 children and never once went to anyone with his physical needs. And that book details his life and ministry of prayer. Where George Mueller also admitted to having a cold heart in prayer, here's what he said. I often spent a quarter of an hour or half an hour or even an hour on my knees before being conscious to myself of having derived comfort, encouragement, humbling of soul, etc. 
And often after having suffered much from wandering of mind for the first 10 minutes or quarter of an hour or even half an hour, I only then really began to pray. It's like, look, I, I used to waste 15 minutes to an hour every single day just trying to get into my prayer. Just trying to get started with it. That's really discouraging. But then later he wrote, I scarcely ever suffer now in this way. This rarely happens anymore. He found a solution to a cold heart. Here's what he said. I saw the most important thing was to give myself to the reading of God's word and to meditation on it. That thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed. And that thus by means of the word of God while meditating on it, my heart might be brought into experiential communion with the Lord. His solution to having a cold heart was not to try to drum something up in himself. His solution was to focus on meditating on the word of God. And it's in the meditating on the word of God that his heart was warmed and he had a desire to go pray. Thomas Watson called this the preparing of our heart. And he said this preparing of the heart is accomplished by holy thoughts. And he said the same thing. The musician first tunes his instrument before he plays. Meditating on the word of God led Mueller into prayer. He said, after a few minutes, my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication, so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer but to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately more or less to prayer. As Mueller sat and thought about and meditated on the word of God, he recognized that God was absolutely sovereign in everything, and that led him to give thanks. He meditated on the holiness of God, and that led him to confess his sin. He meditated on the, the reality of the sinful nature of man, and that led him to pray and intercede for other people. And prayer just became the response to what the Bible was saying and to the truth of the word of God, rather than some forced and contrived desire. When thus I have been for a while making confession or intercession, I go on to the next words or verse, turning all as I go on into prayer for myself or others, as the word may lead to it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul is the object of my meditation. His, his goal was just to meditate on the word of God. And he said when he truly did that, when he really sat down and meditated on the word of God, the only possible result of that was prayer. He said, I ascribe to this mode the help and strength which I have had from God to pass in peace through deeper trials than I ever had before. And having now above 14 years tried this way, I can most fully in the fear of God commend it. This was his solution to a cold heart. Don't go to prayer and just try to contrive some list. Go and meditate on the word and let your prayer be the result of your meditation. Any questions there? You guys see how these disciplines all interrelate? We memorize scripture so we can meditate on it. We meditate on it so we can pray. What about praying effectively? 
James 5, verse 17 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man. So how do I pray effectively? What's the secret to an effective prayer? Spurgeon gave some tips on how to pray effectively. He actually did this in a sermon that's really good. Here's the first tip he gave. Be ordered in your request. A petitioner coming into a court does not come there without thought to state his case on the spur of the moment, but enters into the audience chamber with his suit well prepared. Spurgeon views the person going into prayer as a lawyer. And he says a lawyer, when he goes into the courtroom, doesn't just walk in and make his arguments on the fly. He's not assembling his his thoughts as he's walking in. The lawyer sits down and he thinks through what his suit is going to be, how he's going to address the issue, what he's going to say to the judge. This is where having a prayer list, names, needs, deeds, or excuse me, desires, knowing what you're going into prayer for, knowing what you're going to ask for, what you're going to call upon God for. Having a list, knowing what you're, going to, uh, what you're going to request is going to help you be clear in your request. Spurgeon said, why not be distinct and say what we mean as well as mean what we say? Ordering our cause would bring us to greater distinctness of mind. In his day, they had a whole bunch of preachers who just spoke above everybody else, and they were very professorial in their preaching. And their prayers were the exact same way. And he says, just say what you need. Tell them what you need and what you mean. Be clear and distinct. And sitting down and thinking through your prayer beforehand is the best way to do this. So the first one, be ordered, be logical, sit down and be clear. The second tip Spurgeon gives Argue with God. Argue with God. Not filling the mouth with words or good phrases nor pretty expressions, but filling the mouth with arguments and dropping stuff at the same time. Filling your mouth with arguments like a lawyer going into a courtroom and presenting a case before God. Here's why you should answer this prayer. Here's why you should do what I'm asking you to do. When we come to the gate of mercy, forcible arguments are the knocks of the wrapper by which the gate is opened. You're going to plead your case as a lawyer pleads his case in a courtroom, either to a judge or to a jury. And you're going to give convincing proofs that God should in fact answer your prayer. There it is again, like a lawyer. Okay. What are some good arguments that someone can make with God? The first one is to pray the attributes of God. This is where theology proper really helps. Praying the attributes of God. You can pray the omniscience of God. You know the omniscience of God is a great doctrine. It's a great doctrine because even if I don't know what to say, I don't have to worry about it. Even if I don't know how to express what's in my heart, I don't have to worry about that either. Because God is omniscient. He knows exactly what's in my heart. 
I think of Peter in John 21. Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you, you know I have brotherly affection for you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I, I, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. I don't have to tell you this. You know, you know, God, that even though I don't have a huge desire for prayer, even though there's plenty wrong with my heart, you see that little mustard seed of faith in me. You know. Pray the omniscience of God. Pray the mercy of God. Is he, uh, is he, Exodus 34, 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Over and over and over again, the Bible speaks of God as being merciful and compassionate, and His loving kindness is enduring forever. When you go to God in prayer, you plead the mercy of God, and you say, look, God, there's a sinner here who really needs your mercy. And this is who you are. So be merciful to me. Be merciful to my family member. Pray the justice of God. Think of Genesis 18. God tells Abram he's going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody remember what Abram said back to God? I hear somebody. Right? And his whole argument there when he said, is there righteous people in the city? His whole argument was, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You can plead the justice of God. I think of the U.S. right now with so many people running the wrong direction and how we are ripe for judgment. Plead the justice of God. Lord, are there not at least ten righteous in this country that you could preserve them? Pray the attributes of God. Learn who God is and then take that back to him in prayer and say, God, this is who you are. I'm just asking you to behave consistent with your own nature. So you can pray the attributes. Secondly, you can pray the promises of God. You can pray the promises of God. The scriptures are filled with promises for the believer. Spurgeon said, my brother, if you have a divine promise, you need not plead with an if in it. You may plead with a certainty. If for the mercy which you are now asking, you have God's solemnly pledged word, there will scarce be any room for caution about submission to his will. You know his will. That will is in the promise, so plead it. Do not give him rest until he fulfills it. He meant to fulfill it, or else he would not have given the promise. You know the will of God. You don't need to say, Lord, if it's your will. You know it's his will. It's in his word. You can plead the promise of God with full assurance that God will, in fact, answer the request because he's already made the, the promise to you. And he made that promise with the purpose or with the goal of actually fulfilling it. So plead the promises of God. Find a promise in Scripture 
and go pray it and keep praying it until he answers it. Third, the great name of God. Pray the great name of God. What does that mean? This one can be misused, so we're going to assume that you understand the attributes of God and the promises of God and that you're going to do this according to Scripture. So this can be misused. Here's what Spurgeon said. I have told my friends and neighbors that I put my trust in thee. And if you do not deliver me now, where is your name? Arise, O God, and do this thing, lest your name or your honor be cast into the dust. God, everyone knows I'm trusting in you. Everyone knows that I'm looking to you to save me, and they're all mocking me for it. And if you don't answer, if you don't answer according to the promises you have made, what's going to happen to your name? They're going to blaspheme you. Plead the name of God. Do this for your glory. See how this can be misused? Okay, last one. Plead the sufferings, the death, and the merit, or the merit and the intercession of Christ. Jesus said in John 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's one of those promises you can start pleading. Spurgeon again. Suppose you should give a man your checkbook signed with your own name and left, and left blank to be filled out as he chooses. That would be very nearly what Jesus has done in these words. If you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. If I had a good name at the bottom of the check, I should be sure that I should get it cash when I went to the banker. So when you have Christ's name, there is no need to speak with fear and trembling and bated breath. A waver not and let not faith stagger. He says, look, if I go to the bank and I've got a check from Bill Gates, it doesn't really matter how much the check is for they're going to be pretty confident that that check's going to go through. And he says, the name at the bottom is what's important. And the name at the bottom of this check is the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, when you plead the name of Christ, you plead that which shakes the gates of hell and which the host of heaven obey, and God himself feels the sacred power of the divine plea. Christ has won the promises for you. Christ has earned everything for you. And all Spurgeon is saying, when you go into prayer, plead the name of Christ. So argue with God. Make good arguments. Plead His attributes. Plead His promises. Plead His name. Plead His Son. Okay, hang on a minute. Stop. Hang on. Wait a minute. Hang on. Are you saying I have to make an argument and I'm going to convince God of something? Is that what you're telling me? That God is so loving that I have to convince him to pull it off? Is that really the argument Spurgeon is making? No. That's not the argument Spurgeon is making. 
Here's what Spurgeon said. Certainly not because God is slow to, is uh, Certainly not because God is slow to give, not because we can change the divine purpose, not because God needs to be informed of any circumstance with regard to ourselves or of anything in connection with the mercy asked. The arguments to be used are for our own benefit, not for his. You make the argument not to convince God that he should act in a certain way. You make the argument not so you can try to fetch a little extra mercy from God because he's, you know, kind of stingy with it. You make the argument for your own benefit. Making arguments in prayer convinces you that the granting of the request is in fact a mercy. When I have to come and plead, I can't turn around and say, I earned it. If I have to come and make an argument and make a case for what I'm asking for, I can't turn around and say I've somehow accomplished something. It was a gift given. Making arguments strengthens your desire for the request and the fervency of those listening. When you plead and make rational, logical arguments for your prayer, it strengthens your own desire for what you're pleading for. And if you're Praying with other saints, you will strengthen their desire and you will grow their fervency for that request. Making arguments. The final reason you should make an argument to God is found in James chapter 1. He said, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Doubt will kill a prayer quick. And the promise here is, if you're doubting, your prayer is not going to be answered. The arguments are not to convince God he should behave a certain way. The argument is not, God, you need to act a certain way because I said so, or I made a good argument. The argument is, you and I have weak faith, and we're full of doubts. And by making logical, rational arguments based in Scripture, that doubt is removed. And the argument convinces me. Biblical arguments convince you that your request is God's will and it removes doubt. Ian Bounds said, The praying which gives color and bent to character is no pleasant, hurried pastime. It must enter as strongly into the heart and life as Christ's strong crying and tears did. It must draw out the soul into an agony of desire as Paul's did. It must be an inwrought fire and force like effectual, fervent prayer of James. If you want to have effective, fervent prayer, make arguments to God. Submit a logical, rational argument from Scripture why God should answer your prayer. Plead His attributes. Plead the promises of God. Plead for His name. Plead the name of Christ. And it will remove your doubt. All right, questions, comments?
I'm sorry? All comes down to attitude. Yeah. Got an example? Yeah, he said if you if you have the wrong motive when you go into prayer, it's going to hinder your prayer. And that's true. What you believe about your prayer, what you believe about what you're asking is going to change how you pray and if you pray. And I, w- I would just say, look at your prayer life and it'll tell you what you actually believe. We can all sit here and say, well, I believe prayer works. And then if we go home and we never pray, do we actually believe it? Any other comments before we close? Questions? No. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had. We thank you for your word, for the promises you have given. We thank you for this privilege that we have to come before you in prayer. And we just ask that you would take wherever we are in our prayer life and that you would help us to excel still more. That we would take what we truly believe about prayer and live that out. That we would recognize that without you, we can do nothing. And we ask that you would help us this morning as we come to worship you and to praise you. And that we would do it for your glory and your honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.